Welcome. My name is Elliot. I'm the pastor here. I'm very glad you've decided to join us this morning. Um, we are wrapping up a, a summer series this morning on prayer. We've been in prayer for the last 11 or 12 weeks, kind of looking at this whole idea, uh, this whole posture that the disciples come to Jesus with in his earthly ministry, and they say to him, Lord, will you teach us how to pray? Uh, that's been our, our approach to this series. Lord, would you teach us how to pray out of all the things that the disciples could have asked Jesus to teach them how to do. Jesus, will you teach us how to walk on water? Will you teach us how to feed the 5,000? Will you teach us how to do miracles? They said, after watching him for their, uh, those three years of his public ministry, they said, Jesus, there's something you got to teach us. And there's something about the way that you pray that we have to learn before you leave us. And so that's been our approach this summer. We've looked at a lot of different aspects of prayer. And then we spent a bulk of the summer walking through the Lord's Prayer, the most well-known uh, prayer perhaps in the world. And uh, now we're, we've finished walking through the Lord's Prayer and we wrap up the series with one final story um, that we'll get to in just a minute. But I want you all to know I, this may be a uh, space saver or a, uh, a space problem uh, causer is that next week we will start our fall series on the book of Revelation, um, which I am very excited and terrified to do with you. Uh, but we have been working on it for a very long time. Uh, which could be great or terrible. Uh, but we are very excited to walk through the book of Revelation uh, this fall together. Um, and hopefully it uh, draws you in as well. But today, one final sermon on our prayer series. Jesus tells a parable, and I want you to listen to what he says the parable can do for your prayer life. He, he actually tells us at, before he gives the parable why he gave the parable and what it can do for us in making us persistent, hopeful prayers. So this is Luke chapter 18. Luke is the only gospel writer that records this parable for us. This is Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 1. Here's what Jesus says. And he told them a parable to the effect that they ought, to all, that they ought to always to pray and not lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man, and there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he long delay over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It's the word of the Lord. Amen. Would you pray with me before we dive into this parable? Jesus, uh, guide us now. You teach about reality, but you tell us that when you speak in parables, you, you do so to lead us into mystery. And so as we come into this mystery that we will not fully comprehend, would you, would you just simply cause this parable to do what you said it can do? That it would teach us how to always pray and not lose heart. And Father, as we dive in, we pray for the one who you've called to teach your word this morning, that you forgive him his sins, for they are many. We ask all this in Jesus' name, amen. So the persistent widow, well-known parable to some, unfamiliar to others, not 
not often preached on. Uh, I've got a Bible software on my computer because I'm a professional Christian. And uh, when you type in a passage, it gives you kind of throughout history all the church fathers and all the great preachers that have preached on this, on any particular section of scripture. And I didn't have a whole lot uh, to work with this week. So just putting that caveat out there that um, everything you're hearing is straight from me because I couldn't borrow from anyone else. But um, a plain reading of the story might make it seem like all that we're supposed to do is to just simply compare the characters in the story with the Lord and with ourselves. And there is an element of that that's true. However, we have to be careful to not just believe as we leave this parable that Jesus is teaching that if you just beg God enough for something, he'll give you what you ask for. See, because Jesus doesn't just mean for us to compare in this story. He also means for us to contrast in this story. This is what is known as a clarity by contrast teaching. And we know that from verse 6 because Jesus says, listen to what the unrighteous judge says. And the Lord, who's to be compared to the judge, is a righteous judge. And so we're supposed to learn from the judge how he answers this woman who is us in her begging, which is our praying, but it's meant to be a contrasting teaching that the Lord is not entirely like. In fact, he's way opposite the unrighteous judge. This is a comparison by contrast. This is like some Proverbs in the Old Testament. If this thing is true, how much more is this other thing true? So let's do a little comparison by contrast, a little clarity by contrast. The judge is to be compared and contrasted with the Lord. We are to be compared and contrasted with the widow. And her begging for mercy and justice is to be compared and contrasted to our praying. And like we said at the beginning, it's not often that Jesus gives the reason for his parable before he teaches the parable. But Luke tells us why Jesus told this parable, which is helpful for us as we walk through the parable. He says in verse 1, and he told them a parable to the effect that they ought to always pray and not lose heart. So whatever else the parable may teach us, the goal of the parable is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, there's something in this parable that can make you a persistent prayer. There's something in this parable that can make you not lose heart. There's something in this prayer, there's something in this parable that once we grasp it, once we behold it, once we see it, once we are drawn into it, it can make us persistent, courageous, hearty prayers. That's the goal of the parable, which means if it's teaching us and it's giving us some kind of gold and some kind of beauty that would make us persistent prayers that don't lose heart, that means there's something also buried in the parable that teaches us why we don't pray. There's something in the parable that teaches us why we do lose heart. So if we understand this comparison by contrast, it has the power to not only show us why we don't pray and why we do lose heart, it has the ability to show us and make us want to always pray and never lose heart. Does anybody want that? Just me. So what do we see? Verses two through six. Here we go. This is the parable, just in four verses. Jesus said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. There was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. In a city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. For a Jew, which is the original audience of Jesus, 
when any Jew heard this parable, listening to Jesus teach this, Jesus could not have described a more disreputable person. Someone in authority, who's been given authority by God, he's a judge, neither fears God nor respects man. He doesn't love God or love neighbor. You, and he's got power, which means this person is the most corrupt. This person in a Jew's eyes is the most vile. And a widow keeps coming to this vile, evil man for mercy, and more in particular for justice, but those are intertwined, justice and mercy. We don't know what she needs, but we know because she's a widow, she is, uh, the system is stacked against her in the ancient Near East, and she's being attacked in some way, abused in some way, oppressed in some way, taken advantage of in some way. In, in the simplest way, she needs a defender. She needs someone to advocate for her. She needs someone to stand up for her. She needs the laws that were written into Old Testament Israel. She needs the laws that were supposed to protect her, to work for her, to protect her, to defend her. And those laws are not doing it. So she goes to the only person who could make and imply and apply the laws and say, please let these laws, please give me justice. Please defend me. Please give me justice and mercy from my adversary. Someone is taking advantage of me. So she begs to the judge, the unjust, unrighteous judge, for justice and mercy. And she begs and she begs and she begs and she begs. She doesn't beg with a long speech. She says eight words in the Hebrew or in the Greek. Give me justice against my adversary. One short little teaching on this is that your prayers don't need to be long. In fact, they're usually annoying when they're long out loud, okay? In fact, you, you, you don't, she doesn't make any case for why the judge should feel sorry for her, for how victimized she's been, for, hey, don't you see what kind of trouble I'm in? Now, there's nothing wrong with crying out to the Lord and pouring out your heart before him and sharing all your emotions with him. You should do that. But it should be encouraging that all she does is present her need. I, I, I need justice. I need you to show me mercy by giving me justice from my adversary. Will you defend me? She needs help. Give me justice. Give me mercy. Give me justice. Give me mercy. Give me justice. Give me mercy. All her prayer, all her persistent prayer does is present her need. So she begs. And finally, we don't know how long the, 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 the persistence lasts. We just know that it's for a while because the way that the judge describes how it, what it's like to be on the receiving end of her begging is it's not just like a day or two. Listen to what he says. Verse four and five. For a while he refused, but afterward he said to himself, though I neither fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. That phrase, beat me down, literally means blacken my face. He feels like she's given him a black eye with her persistence. Now, most scholars would say he's probably not worried about like being physically assaulted by her, but like the amount you're begging me feels like you've given me a black eye. You've like covered my face. You like, you're, you're like punching me with your prayers, with your begging. And then he says to himself, I love this, we're told, we're told his inner monologue. This unrighteous judge says, self, though I don't fear God or respect man. Now, I find it comical, as did several commentators this week, 
that the judge assesses himself to the same degree of evil that the city assesses him with. Meaning, when he thinks to himself, self, I'm a pretty evil dude. Now, some would say that's comical. Some would say that's the height of arrogance and evil. Because most narcissistic people at least love to at least love to give the semblance or at least love to believe themselves, I'm not that bad. Like they at least believe about themselves, I'm not as bad as other people. But this guy has no self-deceit. This guy knows he's evil and is really proud of it. Self, though I don't fear God or respect man, because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice. He shows no shame or remorse about why he wants to give her justice. He's just tired of her coming and blackening his face. And so he says, I'm just, I'm just so tired of her. We just go away. It's like me with my toddlers when they're begging for something. I'm like, we just leave me alone. Like two seconds, will you be quiet, please? <laughs> Have all the candy you want. Watch all the shows you want. I don't care. Just go, please. Blacken the eyes from a toddler. That's what he feels like. He says, will you quit bothering me? He's annoyed by her. He's fed up by her. He's drained by her. He's over her begging. Do you know there's something in you that believes that about the Lord when you pray to him? There's something deep down that believes that God is bothered by you. Believes that God is annoyed by you. That believes that he's just a tad irritated when you ask from him. This is is at least partly why we lose heart in prayer. This is why we don't keep praying, in part. We believe he grunts when we ask him. <laughs> Seriously? You're at. We believe he's annoyed by us. We believe he rolls his eyes. Sure, Elliot, I, get, I mean, yeah, I know you're asking, but like, come on, dude. Like, we, we believe he's tapping his foot, as Daryl says. We, we believe there's something on the, rece- the receiving end of our prayers that's just a tad annoyed by us and our coming to him. And so we feel that, we prejudge, we have prejudice against the listener, and we believe, I know how the Lord's gonna feel about me when I ask about this, so I'll kind of come and I'll kind of do the, like, self-deprecating thing, and I'll kind of acknowledge for him how he already feels about me, like, Lord, I know you're tired of me asking. It's like you've already spoken for him before you've even spoken to him. We believe Whatever we bring to him with our persistence, there's some level of annoyance on the part of the listener. So of course we lose heart. Of course we don't want to keep coming. If that's the audience we think we have and that's our default posture of the listening one, of course we don't keep praying. And yet this man, this evil, vile, selfish, arrogant who talks to himself, you know, in the third person self, even though I'm arrogant and evil, even that man gives this lady justice because of her persistence. That's the end of the parable. And then the Lord says this, verse 6 and 7. The Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. And will not God, who's not like the unrighteous judge, give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? This is where Jesus is showing us this is a contrasting parable. Clarity by contrast. That we are to judge the judge with the difference the way he's not like the reality of the Lord. 
Hear what the unrighteous judge says, and will not God? If the unrighteous did it this way, how much more will the Lord not do it in a better way? If the woman received mercy and justice that she begged for from an unrighteous judge, how much more do you think the Lord will not give you mercy and justice because you are his elect? His elect. Eclectos is the Greek word. His chosen ones. His dearly beloved ones. The ones he's chosen for himself. The ones he's held close to his chest. The ones he's wept for, groaned for, died for. Will he not give justice to them? Will he not not tire of their coming to him? Will he not not be annoyed by them? If the unjust judge yielded to the continuous cries of the widow, who was a total stranger to him, he had no personal interest in her, and he granted her mercy and justice simply because she begged, how much more will God, who is a just and loving and righteous father, hear the cries of his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? That's the teaching of the parable. Now, um, it doesn't mean that if you just beg God for something, he's going to give you everything you ask for. Paul makes that really clear in 2 Corinthians. He asked the Lord three times for something. The Lord said no. Jesus makes this clear in the Garden of Gethsemane. He asked the Lord that this cup of wrath might pass from him, and the Lord says no. But here is the teaching of the parable. Until you're given a clear no, either from Scripture or from the Holy Spirit, until you're given a clear no, you ask for it. And you ask for it, 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 and you ask for it. Because you have a compassionate father who tells you he wants you to always come to him and ask. You don't have a judge who's annoyed by you. You have a compassionate father who wants to hear your praying. Jesus is the, giving, is the one giving the parable. And he says, I'm telling you this parable so that you will always pray. I'm not annoyed by you. I want you to keep coming to me. I want you to keep asking for me. That's what the parable's teaching. That's the teaching of this four-verse parable. And it cuts to the heart, and yes, it can inject a bit of courage into my weary self. It can inject a little bit of sustenance into my begging. It can certainly lead me towards, oh, if that's what my audience is like, who you are and what you're like can make me want to be a prayer. But i got to be honest about something. I haven't been up until this point, but now. Something began to bother me this week in studying this passage. Because all that's true and the comparison by contrast is precious and Lord, you're not like the judge and we're not a widow, we're your bride. You're our father, we're your children. You're not, you, you don't get tired of us coming. All that's true. But where does Jesus get off in the next verse as he's teaching about the parable saying this? Look at verse eight. Allie, we throw this up there? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Could have done without that last adverb. Speedily? From whose perspective? What are we talking about? Because I don't know all of you, but I know enough of you. And I know the things you've begged the Lord for and are still begging the Lord for, and you wouldn't describe his answering of that in any way, shape, or form as speedily. What have you begged the Lord for? And I would say even if you're an atheist, you've begged the Lord for something. The God that you don't even believe is there, 
you've grown for something repeatedly and wanted your reality to be different than it is, and you don't have a name or a belief in the God that may be on the other side of those groans, but you've begged in your soul for something to be different. And I'm not just talking about the times that you've closed your eyes and gotten on your knees and said the Lord's Prayer and then made your request known. I'm not talking about that. That's not, that's not the only place that the Bible would say is a version of praying. I'm talking about the rage you feel after another failure and all the self-hatred that you pour on yourself in your contempt and your shame. That's begging for something. I'm talking about the despair you feel when you fall asleep and the pit that you feel like you're in and you feel like, I don't even know if I want to wake up tomorrow morning. That's begging. I'm talking about the crying you do when the pain is great or the loss is great and you don't know if you have any more tears and you don't know if, you even, if your crying is even being listened to by anybody else. That's begging. I know you've begged him for a spouse. I know you've begged him for a different spouse. I know you've begged him for freedom from your addiction. You've begged him for a promotion. You've begged him for joy. You've begged him to take the cancer away. You've begged him to bring the prodigal home. You've begged and you've begged and you've begged and you've begged and you're still begging. And this parable, Jesus wants to teach us, and at the end he decides to say, he has the audacity to say, will he not speedily give justice and mercy to you? And you want to go, nope, he won't. Still waiting, still hasn't answered, still not speedily by my definition. So what is Jesus talking about? What, like, okay, now he's not so obtuse that he would say at the beginning of the parable section, this prayer is meant to make you always pray and never lose heart, and then at the end of the parable say something that would make you lose heart. So is it possible that that promise from Jesus, will he not give justice speedily to his elect, is actually meant to make you always pray and never lose heart? Could we see it from his perspective? 2 Peter 3 says that this is, this is okay, we're going to get a little space and time, okay? You ready for this? We're going to get a little, like, astrophysics, I think. I don't even know if that's the right category. 2 Peter 3 says this, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So we at least have to submit to this idea that from Jesus' perspective, time is different for him. Time, he... He doesn't experience time like we experience time. God doesn't view time like you view time, which is really hard to comprehend, but it's really necessary for us to acknowledge or submit to for a few moments if we're gonna be comforted by the promise at the end of this parable. See, the Lord is actually outside of space and time, meaning that's why one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like one day for him. He's not bound by time. He's not limited by time. He's outside of it. He doesn't experience it the way that we do. He's what the philosophers would call transcendent, above time. He's not limited by it. He looks at this thing called space and time that we inhabit, and he's outside of it. He's outside of it because he made it. He made space and time. Now, I know, stay with me. If he's outside of space and time... From his perspective, if he's transcendent over it and time is relative to him, then can he not say or could we not acknowledge that when he says speedily, it may mean something different to us? 
Like speedily to him may be different than speedily to us. The things that we experience in chronological time, one moment to the next, get this, okay, I know we're getting a little out there, welcome to church, but if we experience things chronologically and he's outside of our timeline, here's what that means. The things that we experience from his perspective have already happened. Your past, your present, and your future from his perspective have already happened. All of history from his perspective has already happened before any of it happened from our perspective. Which is why the book of Revelation, which we'll study this fall, another plug, can say Jesus Christ was crucified, the lamb that was slain before the foundations of the world. Revelation says that Jesus was crucified before time began. And you want to say, no, 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 he wasn't. He was crucified in 33 AD. Ish. You want to say like, no, no, no. He, it was a moment in time. Yes, it was. But if you're outside of time, from that perspective, he was crucified before time began in, in, from the perspective of the Lord. It's already happened, which means, okay, stay with me here. How many times do I have to say that? The need we have, the need we have for justice and mercy at the deepest level of the human experience, get this, has already been met. That's what happened on the cross. Justice and mercy for the desperate human race collided together and the father acted on his prodigal's behalf in order to bring them home. And that act was done from the Lord's perspective before the foundations of the world, which means God acted to give you justice and mercy before you ever asked for it. Can anything be done more speedily than that? If something's given before it's even asked for, that's faster than instant. It's already been given to you before you even knew to ask for it. Meaning that the needs that you have, Jesus has met those needs as speedily as it comes. So from his perspective, just for a moment, can you see how he might say in this passage that he will speedily give mercy and justice to his elect and his beloved because he's already met them. He's already given you mercy and justice. He's already met your deepest need. He's already given what you needed before you asked for it. He gave it to you instantly. And if you could see from his perspective, like if we could get into the heavenlies with him and see outside of space and time like he is, you would call what he's done for you already and not yet from your human experience, you would call it speedily too. He's already done it. See, don't just apply this promise for speedy justice and mercy to your past. From the Lord's transcendent perspective, he hasn't just already met your past needs. Since he's outside of space and time, he's already met your future needs too. From his perspective, it's already happened. He's already acted speedily because from his perspective, your future has already happened too. Now, I know we're getting a little tenant-y, okay, and interstellar-y, Okay, I know, I know, I know. But this, this, is, this is biblical. There's many times in the Old Testament, Paul even does this in the New Testament, where they talk about something that's going to happen from the human experience. They t- they're, they're promising the church, they're promising God's people something that's gonna happen in their future, but they will use a past tense verb when they give it, when they give the promise. And they're saying, it's already happened, 
even though you haven't experienced it yet. It's going to happen for you, but it's already happened in reality. It's called a prophetic perspective. They will use past tense when giving future promises. Herman Bavink, famous Dutch theologian, says in his book on Revelation, the Christian lives in the future and the future lives in them. If the future lives in you, that means that the future healing of all of your wounds has already happened for you and that's already in you. It's already true for you because it's already happened. The pain and the begging that you're in right now, I know that's real for you, but the the same thing is also true for you about your future. Your future healing has already happened too and that's in you also. That's why Paul can say, and again, I know we're getting so space and timey here. We're gonna get out of this third dimension in a minute or fourth dimension, whatever. In Ephesians 2, Paul can say this, you are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. And you wanna go, no, I'm not. I'm seated at Midtown 12 South and it's getting long. Like you, you wanna... You're saying like, no, I'm not seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But Paul can say, because the future is in you, your future self is also the real you. Your future has already happened from the Lord's perspective. So Paul can say to you, you're already seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Your future self is already with Jesus. It's already done. We're just waiting for the promise to become the reality from our perspective. But from his perspective, it's already done. And when our reality collides and is enveloped in the ultimate transcendent reality, we will, guess what we'll say? Man, that was speedily done. (laughs) To the transcendent one, everything is speedily done. Okay, enough space and time talk, okay? Now Now we're gonna like really push this in. Because if all he is is transcendent, if that's the only reality about the transcendent one is that he's only transcendent, then he might be a cold being. He might be the kind of being that would look at your pain and your begging and he might say to you, just grin and bear it because the flight will be over soon. I know there's turbulence, I know it's hard, I know you're begging, but it's all already done and so don't worry about it. He could say that. But what if the transcendent one also became the imminent one? What if the one giving this parable was trying to teach them, yes, everything in reality is speedily done from my perspective, but I didn't just say that to you from the heavenlies. I came down to be the near one to you. What if the infinite one who's outside of space and time became the finite one who could feel pain in time and space? What if the transcendent one became the slain one? And now, because he has entered into time and space, you're not just seated with him in the heavenlies. He's also seated with you in the begging places. Your future self may already be with him, but his spiritual self is already with you. That's what the incarnation means. See, what if, what if he's not only the transcendent one, but he's also the one that when you look at the misty haze of your future 
and you don't think you'll have what you need to walk in the space and time that's been set before you, and you don't think you'll have what you need to be sustained on the road ahead, and you don't want to keep praying, and you don't want to not lose heart because it's already been lost, what if you don't think you can beg one more day? That's the place where the Lord says, if you want to walk into that future, I'll be with you. I'll go with you. And you won't ever walk alone in this space and time world. That's how the prayer continues to pray and doesn't lose heart. It's the knowledge and the belief that unlike this persistent widow who had to go and beg and beg and beg, had to go to the judge to get his attention, we actually believe that we have a father who didn't make us come to him, but he came to us. So now we believe that not only are we not a bother, not only that he will act speedily because we're his elect, we're not alone. You don't walk alone in this world. That's how you don't lose heart. So just like our call to worship from Habakkuk 2, thanks Maddie for calling us to worship. Habakkuk 2 urged God's people then and it urges us now It says this, if it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come and it will not delay. We wait for it. We wait for it, we wait for it, we wait for it. We don't lose heart because our past and our future needs have already been met. And while we wait for the Lord to deliver us justice and mercy, he's with us while we wait. Let's pray and then we'll come to the table together. Jesus You're tired and weary beggars. Um, It's hard to hear that it will be done speedily when it doesn't seem speedily to us. And so would you give us our heavenly perspective that's not bound by this space and time and even this like transcendent idea. May it be a comfort to us and not hurt our brains, but would would it heal our hearts? As we know that the transcendent one also became the imminent one. The transcendent one became the slain one before time began. And that now that you've entered into our space and time and you know the taste of tears and you know our pain, you know what it's like to be ripped apart, you know what it's like to be wounded. Would we always pray and not lose heart because the wounded one is with us while we wait? We ask all this in your precious name, Jesus. Amen.